Chapter 13 of Historical Mysteries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Historical Mysteries by Andrew Lang. Chapter 13 The Mystery of the Kirks. No historical problem has proved more perplexing to Englishmen than the nature of the differences between the various Kirks in Scotland. The Southron found that, whether he worshipped in a church of the established Kirk, the Auld Kirk, of the Free Church, or of the United Presbyterian Church, the UPs, it was all the same thing. The nature of the service was exactly similar though sometimes the congregation stood at prayers and sat when it sang, sometimes stood when it sang and knelt at prayer. Not one of the Kirks used a prescribed liturgy. I have been in a free Kirk which had no pulpit. The pastor stood on a kind of raised platform like a lecturer in a lecture room, but that practice is unessential. The Kirks, if I mistake not, have different collections of hymns, which till recent years were contemned as things of human invention, and therefore idolatrous. But hymns are now in use, as also are organs, or harmoniums, or other musical instruments. Thus the faces of the Kirks are similar and sisterly. Faces non omnibus una nec diversa tamen qualem desit esse sororum. What then, the South Run used to ask, is the difference between the Free Church, the Established Church, and the United Presbyterian Church? If the South Run put the question to his Scottish friend, the odds were that the Scottish friend could not answer. He might be a member of the Scottish Episcopal community and as ignorant as any Anglican, or he might not have made these profound studies in Scottish history which throw glimmerings of light on this obscure subject. Indeed, the whole aspect of the mystery has shifted of late, like the colors in a kaleidoscope. The more conspicuous hues are no longer Old Kirk, Free Kirk, and UPs, but Old Kirk, Free Kirk and United Free Kirk. The United Free Kirk was composed in 1900 of the old United Presbyterians, as old as 1847, with the overwhelming majority of the old Free Kirk, while the Free Kirk of the present moment consists of a tiny minority of the old Free Kirk, which declined to join the recent union. By a judgment, one may well call it a judgment, of the House of Lords, August 1st, 1904, the Free Kirk, commonly called the We Frees, now possesses the wealth that was the old Free Kirks before, in 1900, it united with the United Presbyterians, and became the United Free Church. It is to be hoped that common sense will discover some outgate or issue from this distressing imbroglio. In the words which Mr. R. L. Stevenson, 
then a sage of twenty-four, penned in 1874, we may say, quote, Those who are at all open to a feeling of national disgrace look forward eagerly to such a possibility. They have been witnesses already too long to the strife that has divided this small corner of Christendom. End quote. The eternal schisms of the Kirk, said R.L.S., exhibit something pitiful for the pitiful man, but bitterly humorous for others. The humor of the present situation is only too manifest. Two generations ago, about half of the ministers of the Kirk of Scotland left their manses and pleasant glebes for the sake of certain ideas. Of these ideas, they abandoned some, or left them in suspense, a few years since, and as a result they have lost, if only for the moment, their manses, stipends, colleges, and pleasant glebes. Why should all these things be so? The answer can only be found in the history, and a history both sad and bitterly humorous it is, of the Reformation in Scotland. When John Knox died, on November 24, 1572, a decent Burgess of Edinburgh wrote in his diary, quote, John Knox, minister, deceased, who had, as was alleged, the most part of the blame of all the sorrows of Scotland, since the slaughter of the late cardinal beaten murdered at st andrews in fifteen forty six the sorrows of scotland had endured when knox died for but twenty-six years since his death three hundred thirty-two years have gone by and the present sorrows of the united free kirk are the direct though distant result of some of the ideas of john knox the whole trouble springs from his peculiar notions and the notions of his followers about the relations between church and state. In 1843, half the ministers of the established Kirk in Scotland, or more, left the Kirk and went into the wilderness for what they believed to be the ideal of Knox. In 1904, they have again a prospect of a similar exodus because they are no longer rigid adherents of the very same ideal. A tiny minority of some 27 ministers clings to what it considers to be the Noxian ideal and is rewarded by all the wealth bestowed on the Free Kirk by pious benefactors during 60 years. The quarrel for 344 years, 1560 to 1904, has been, we know, about the relations of church and state. The disruption of 1843, the departure of the Free Kirk out of the established Kirk, arose thus, according to Lord MacNaughton, who gave one of the two opinions in favor of the United Free Kirk's claim to the possessions held by the Free Kirk before its union, in 1900, with the United Presbyterians. Before 1843, there were, says the sympathetic judge, two parties in the established church, the moderates and the evangelicals, also called the wild men, the highland host, or the high flyers. 
the evangelicals became the majority and quote, they carried matters with a high hand they passed acts in the assembly altogether beyond the competence of a church established by law the state refused to admit their claims the strong arm of the law restrained their extravagancies still they maintained that their proceedings were justified and required by the doctrine of the headship of christ to which they attached peculiar and extraordinary significance End quote. now the state in eighteen thirty eight to eighteen forty three could not and would not permit these extravagancies in a state-paid church the evangelical party therefore seceded maintaining as one of their leaders said that quote, we are still the church of scotland the only church that deserves the name the only church that can be known and recognized by the maintaining of those principles to which the church of our fathers was true when she was on the mountain and on the field when she was under persecution when she was an outcast from the world thus the free kirk was the kirk and the established kirk was heretical was what knox would have called ein rotten laudicien now the fact is that the church of scotland had been since august fifteen sixty a kirk established by law or by what was said to be a legal parliament yet had never perhaps for an hour attained its own full ideal relation to the state had never been granted its entire claims but only so much or so little of these as the political situation compelled the state to concede or enabled it to withdraw there had always been members of the kirk who claimed all that the free kirk claimed in eighteen forty three but they never got quite as much as they asked they often got much less than they wanted and the full sum of their desires could be granted by no state to a state paid church entire independence could be obtained only by cutting the church adrift from the state the free kirk then did cut themselves adrift but they kept on maintaining that they were the church of scotland and that the state ought in duty to establish and maintain them while granting them absolute independence the position was stated thus in eighteen fifty one by an act and declaration of the free kirk's assembly quote, she holds still and through god's grace will ever hold that it is the duty of civil rulers to recognize the truth of god according to his word and to promote and support the kingdom of christ without assuming any jurisdiction in it or any power over it the state in fact if we may speak carnally ought to pay the piper but must not presume to call the tune now we touch the skirt of the mystery what was the difference between the free kirk and the united presbyterians who since nineteen hundred have been blended with that body the difference was that the free kirk held it to be the duty of the state to establish her and leave her perfect independence while the united presbyterians maintained the absolutely 
opposite opinion, namely, that the state cannot and must not establish any church or pay any church out of the national resources. When the two Kirks united in 1900, then, the Free Kirk either abandoned the doctrine of which, in 1851, she said that she holds it still, and through God's grace ever will hold it, or she regarded it as a mere pious opinion which did not prevent her from coalescing with a Kirk of contradictory ideas. The tiny minority, the we frees, the free Kirk of today, would not accept this compromise, hence these tears, to leave differences in purely metaphysical theology out of view. Now the root of all the trouble, all the schisms and sufferings of more than three centuries, lies, as we have said, in some of the ideas of John Knox. And one asks, of what Kirk would John Knox be if he were alive in the present state of affairs? I venture to think that the venerable reformer would be found in the ranks of the established Kirk, the old Kirk, he would not have gone out into the wilderness in 1843, and he would most certainly have opposed the ideas of the United Presbyterians. This theory may surprise at a first glance, but it has been reached after many hours of earnest consideration. Knox's ideas, as far as he ever reasoned them out, reposed on this impregnable rock, namely that Calvinism, as held by himself, was an absolutely certain thing in every detail. If the state, or the civil magistrate, as he put the case, entirely agreed with Knox, then Knox was delighted that the state should regulate religion. The magistrate was to put down Catholicism and other aberrations from the truth, as it was in John Knox, with every available engine of the law, corporal punishment, prison, exile, and death. If the state was ready and willing to do all this, then the state was to be implicitly obeyed in matters of religion, and the power in its hands was God-given. In fact, the state was the secular aspect of the church. Looking at the state in this ideal aspect, Knox writes about the obedience due to the magistrate in matters religious, after the manner of what, in this country, would be called the fiercest Erastianism. The state rules the roost in all matters of religion and may do what Laud and Charles I perished in attempting, may alter forms of worship always provided that the state absolutely agrees with the Kirk. Thus, under Edward VI, Knox would have desired the secular power in England, the civil magistrate, to forbid people to kneel at the celebration of the sacrament. That was entirely within the competence of the state, simply and solely because Knox desired that people should not kneel. But when, long after Knox's death, the civil magistrate insisted in Scotland that people should kneel, the upholders of Knox's ideas denied that the magistrate, James the Sixth, 
had any right to issue such an order and they refused to obey while remaining within the established church they did not disrupt like the free church they simply acted as they pleased and denounced their obedient brethren as no lawful ministers the end of it all was that they stirred up the civil war in which the first shot was fired by the legendary jenny geddes throwing her stool at the reader in st giles thus we see that the state was to be obeyed in matters of religion when the state did the bidding of the kirk and not otherwise when first employed as a licensed preacher and agent of the state in england knox accepted just as much of the state's liturgy as he pleased the liturgy ordered the people to kneel knox and his berwick congregation disobeyed with equal freedom he and the other royal chaplains at easter preaching before the king denounced his ministers northumberland and the rest knox spoke of them in his sermon as judas shebna and some other scriptural malignants later he said that he repented having put things so mildly he ought to have called the ministers by their names not veiled things in a hint now we cannot easily conceive a chaplain of her late majesty in a sermon preached before her denouncing the chancellor of the exchequer say mr gladstone as judas yet knox a licensed preacher of a state church indulged his spiritual independence to that extent and took shame to himself that he had not gone further obviously if this is erastianism it is of an unusual kind the idea of knox is that in a catholic state the ruler is not to be obeyed in religious matters by the true believers sometimes knox wrote that the catholic ruler ought to be met by passive resistance sometimes that he ought to be shot at sight he stated these diverse doctrines in the course of eighteen months in a protestant country the catholics must obey the protestant ruler or take their chances of prison exile fire and death the protestant ruler in a protestant state is to be obeyed in spiritual matters by protestants just as far as the kirk may happen to approve his proceedings or even further in practice if there is no chance of successful resistance we may take it that knox if he had been alive and retained his old ideas in eighteen forty three would not have gone out of the established church with the free church because in his time he actually did submit to many state regulations of which he did not approve for example he certainly did not approve of bishops and had no bishops in the kirk as established on his model in fifteen sixty but twelve years later bishops were reintroduced by the state in the person of the regent morton a ruffian and knox did not retire to the mountain and the fields but made the most practical efforts to get the best terms possible for the kirk he was old and outworn and he remained in the established kirk and advised no man to leave it it was his theory again as it was that of the free kirk 
that there should be no patronage no presentation of ministers to cures by the patron the congregations were to choose and call any properly qualified person at their own pleasure as they do now in all the kirks including since eighteen seventy four the established church but the state in knox's lifetime overrode this privilege of the church the most infamous villain of the period archibald douglas was presented to the kirk of glasgow and indeed the nobles made many such presentations of unscrupulous and ignorant cadets to important livings morton gave a bishopric to one of the murderers of riccio yet knox did not advise a secession he merely advised that non-residence or a scandalous life or erroneous doctrine on the part of the person presented should make his presentation null and of no force or effect and this to have place also in the nomination of the bishops thus knox was on occasion something of an opportunist if alive in eighteen forty three he would probably have remained in the establishment and worked for that abolition of patronage which was secured from within in eighteen seventy four if this conjecture is right the free kirk was more noxian than john knox and departed from his standard he was capable of sacrificing a good deal of spiritual independence rather than break with the state many times long after he was dead the national church under stress of circumstances accepted compromises knox knew the difference between the ideal and the practical it was the ideal that all non-convertible catholics should die the death but the ideal was never made real the state was not prepared to oblige the kirk in this matter it was the ideal that any of the brethren conscious of a vocation and seeing a good opportunity should treat an impenitent catholic ruler as jehu treated jezebel but if any brother had consulted knox as to the propriety of assassinating queen mary in fifteen sixty one to sixty seven he would have found out his mistake and probably have descended the reformer's stairs much more rapidly than he mounted them yet knox though he could submit to compromise really had a remarkably mystical idea of what the kirk was and of the attributes of her clergy the editor of the free church union case mr taylor innes himself author of a biography of the reformer writes in his preface to the judgment of the house of lords quote, the church of scotland as a protestant church had its origin in the year fifteen sixty for its first confession dates from august and its first assembly from december in that year in fact the confession was accepted and passed as law by a very dubious legal convention of the estates in august fifteen sixty but knox certainly conceived that the protestant church in if not of scotland existed a year before that date and before that date it possessed the power of the keys and even 
it would perhaps seem the power of the sword to his mind as soon as a local set of men of his own opinions met and chose a pastor and preacher who also administered the sacraments the protestant church was a church in being the catholic church then by law established was knox held no church at all her priests were not lawful ministers her pope was the man of sin ex officio and the church was the kirk of the malignants a lady of pleasure in babylon bred on the other hand the real church it might be of but two hundred men was confronting the kirk of the malignants and alone was genuine the state did not make and could not unmake the true church but was bound to establish foster and obey it it was this last proviso which caused one hundred and thirty years of bloodshed and persecution and general unrest in scotland from fifteen fifty nine to sixteen ninety why was the kirk so often out in the heather and hunted like a partridge on the field and the mountain the answer is that when the wilder spirits of the kirk were not being persecuted they were persecuting the state and bullying the individual subject all this arose from knox's idea of the church to constitute a church no more was needed than a local set of calvinistic protestants and a lawful minister to constitute a lawful minister at first later far more was required no more was needed than a call to a preacher from a local set of calvinistic protestants but when once the call was given and accepted that lawful minister was by the theory as superior to the laws of the state as the celebrated emperor was superior to grammar a few lawful ministers of this kind possessed the power of the keys they could hand anybody over to satan by excommunicating the man and apparently they could present the power of the sword to any town council which could then decree capital punishment against any catholic priest who celebrated mass as by the law of the state he was in duty bound to do such were the moderate and reasonable claims of knox's kirk in may fifteen fifty nine even before it was accepted by the convention of estates in august fifteen sixty it was because not the church but the wilder spirits among the ministers persevered in these claims that the state when it got the chance drove them into moors and mosses and hanged not a few of them i have never found these facts fully stated by any historian or by any biographer of knox except by the reformer himself partly in his history partly in his letters to a lady of his acquaintance the mystery of the kirks turns on the knoxian conception of the lawful minister and his claim to absolutism to give examples knox himself about fifteen forty to forty three was a priest of the altar one of bale's shaven sort 
on that score he later claimed nothing after the murder of cardinal beaton the murderers and their associates forming a congregation in the castle of st andrews gave knox a call to be their preacher he was now a lawful minister in may fifteen fifty nine he with about four or five equally lawful ministers two of them converted friars one of them a baker and one harlow a tailor were in company with their protestant backers who destroyed the monasteries in perth and the altars and ornaments of the church there they at once claimed the power of the keys and threatened to excommunicate such of their allies as did not join them in arms they the brethren also denounced capital punishment against any priest who celebrated mass at perth now the lawful ministers could not think of hanging the priests themselves they must therefore have somehow bestowed the power of the sword on the baileys and town council of perth i presume for the regent mary of guise when she entered the town dismissed these men from office which was regarded as an unlawful and perfidious act on her part again in the summer of fifteen sixty the baileys of edinburgh while catholicism was still by law established denounced the death penalty against recalcitrant catholics the kirk also allotted lawful ministers to several of the large towns and thus established herself before she was established by the estates in august fifteen sixty thus nothing could be more free and more absolute than the kirk in her early bloom on the other hand as we saw even in knox's lifetime the state having the upper hand under the regent morton a strong man introduced prelacy of a modified kind and patronage did not restore to the kirk her patrimony the lands of the old church and only hanged one priest not improbably for a certain reason of a private character there was thus from the first a battle between the protestant church and state at various times one preacher is said to have declared that he was the solitary lawful minister in scotland and one of these men mr cargill excommunicated charles the second while another mr renwick denounced a war of assassination against the government both gentlemen were hanged these were extreme assertions of spiritual independence and the kirk or at least the majority of the preachers protested against such conduct which might be the logical development of the doctrine of the lawful minister but was in practice highly inconvenient the kirk as a whole was loyal sometimes the state under a strong man like morton or james stuart earl of arran a thorough-paced ruffian put down these pretensions of the church at other times as when andrew melville led the kirk under james the sixth she maintained that there was but one king in scotland christ and that the actual king the lad james the sixth was but christ's silly vassal he was supreme in temporal matters but the judicature of the church was supreme 
in spiritual matters. This sounds perfectly fair, but who was to decide what matters were spiritual and what were temporal? The Kirk assumed the right to decide that question. Consequently, it could give a spiritual color to any problem of statesmanship. For example, a royal marriage, trade with Catholic Spain, which the Kirk forbade, or the expulsion of the Catholic peers. Quote, there is a judgment above yours, said the Reverend Mr. Pont to James VI, and that is God's put in the hand of the ministers, for we shall judge the angels, set the apostles. Again, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones and judge, quoted Mr. Pont, which is chiefly referred to the apostles and consequently to ministers. Quote. Things came to a head in 1596. The king asked the representatives of the Kirk whether he might call home certain earls, banished for being Catholics, if they satisfied the Kirk. The answer was that he might not. Knox had long before maintained that a prophet might preach treason, he is quite explicit, and that the prophet, and whoever carried his preaching into practical effect, would be blameless. A minister was accused at this moment of preaching libelously, and he declined to be judged except by men of his own cloth. If they acquitted him, as they were morally certain to do, what court of appeal could reverse the decision of men who claimed to judge angels? A riot arose in Edinburgh. The king seized his opportunity. He grasped his nettle. The municipal authorities backed him, and, in effect, the claims of true ministers, thenceforth, gave little trouble till the folly of Charles I led to the rise of the Covenant. The sovereign had overshot his limits of power as wildly as ever the Kirk had tried to do, and the result was that the Kirk, having now the nobles and the people in arms on her side, was absolutely despotic for about twelve years. Her final triumph was to resist the estates in Parliament with success and to lay Scotland open to the Cromwellian conquest. What Plantagenets and Tudors could never do, Nall effected. He conquered Scotland, the Kirk having paralyzed the state. The preachers found that Cromwell was a perfect malignant, that he would not suffer prophets to preach treason, nor even allow the General Assembly to meet. Angels they might judge if they pleased, but not Ironsides, excommunication and kirk discipline were discountenanced even witches were less frequently burned the preachers cromwell said had done their due had shot their bolt at this time they split into two parties the extremists calling themselves the godly and the men of milder mood charles the second at the restoration ought probably to have sided with the milder party, some of whom were anxious to see their fierce brethren banished to Orkney out of the way. But Charles's motto was, Never again, 
and by a pettifogging fraud he reintroduced bishops without the hated liturgy. After years of risings and suppressions, the ministers were brought to submission, accepting an indulgence from the state, while but a few upholders of the old pretensions of the clergy stood out in the wilderness of southwestern Scotland. There might be three or four such ministers, there might be only one, but they, or he, to the mind of the remnant, were the only lawful ministers. At the revolution of 1688-89, to the remnant did not accept the compromise under which the Presbyterian Kirk was re-established. They stood out, breaking into many sects. The spiritual descendants of most of these blended into one body as the United Presbyterian Kirk in 1847. In the established Kirk, the moderates were in the majority till about 1837, when the inheritors of those extreme views which Knox compromised about, and which the majority of ministers disclaimed before the revolution of 1688, obtained the upper hand. They had planted the remotest parishes of the highlands with their own kind of ministers, who swamped, in 1838, the votes of the lowland moderates, exactly as, under James VI, highland moderates had swamped the votes of the lowland extremists the majority of extremists or most of it left the kirk in eighteen forty three and made the free kirk in nineteen hundred when the free kirk joined the united presbyterians it was highland ministers mainly who formed the minority of twenty-seven or so who would not accept the new union and now constitute the actual free kirk or we freeze and possess the endowments of the old free kirk of eighteen forty three we can scarcely say beati posidentis it has been shown or i have tried erroneously or not to show that wild and impossible as were the ideal claims of knox of andrew melville of mr pont and others the old scottish kirk of fifteen sixty by law established, was capable of giving up or suppressing these claims, even under Knox, and even while the covenant remained in being. The mass of the ministers, after the return of Charles II, before Worcester fight, before bloody Dunbar, were not irreconcilables. The old Kirk, the Kirk established, has some right to call herself the Church of Scotland, by historical continuity, while the opposite claimants, the men of 1843, may seem rather to descend from people like young Renwick, the last hero who died for their ideas, but not in himself the only lawful minister between Tweed and Cape Wrath. Other times, other manners. All the Kirks were perfectly loyal. Now none persecutes. Interference with private life, Kirk discipline, is a vanishing minimum, and but for this recent garboil, as our old writers put it, we might have said that, under differences of nomenclature, all the Kirks are united at last in the only union worth having, that of peace and goodwill. That union may be restored, let us hope, 
by good temper and common sense, qualities that have not hitherto been conspicuous in the ecclesiastical history of Scotland or of England. End of chapter 13. Recording by Bill Mosley, Llano County, Texas, USA.